Well, this morning, um, we are back in the book of Esther. Uh, we took a one-week break. Um, I was actually preaching at uh, another church this past Sunday um, in Suwon uh, called The Nations. Um, and so I was away from you uh, for, for a week. I certainly uh, missed you, and uh, I'm glad to be, be back and, and back in the book of Esther. Um, and today we will spend uh, the duration of our time together in chapter 4. And so if you have a Bible with you, um, I hope that you do uh, have a copy of God's Word. Um, if you don't, uh, there should be one um, in the seat back in front of you or the seat pocket below. In front of you, you can grab one of those and turn uh, to the book of Esther chapter 4. Um, I've said this a couple times uh, throughout this series, but if you've followed Jesus for any amount of time, uh, you know that following Jesus involves pressure. Um, pressure from the world, pressure from friends sometimes, pressure from family, uh, pressure from bosses, pressure to conform, uh, pressure to compromise our, our faith. And so the simple question when we're confronted with these situations is, uh, what will we do? What will we do when we face pressure? When we're confronted with uh, a crossroads decision in life, which way will we go? Will we be faithful to Christ? Uh, will we follow him when it's not easy, when it's difficult? Um, even when it's going to cause me pain, knowing pain, will I follow? Or will I go my own way? Uh, will I settle? Will we compromise? Will we choose to trust ourselves and others instead of the Lord. Uh, listen, in this, in this life, we continually find ourselves facing crossroads, both big and small. And that's what we're going to see today with Esther, because Esther is going to come up against a major crossroad in her life. And she's going to have to make a very difficult choice. And so through her story, uh, my hope and my prayer today is that we all would be encouraged and equipped to handle whatever crossroad situation we face uh, in this life. In fact, um, I was praying this last night, praying actually this morning, that some of us today, um, you're here, some of us you're watching online, maybe for the first time in a while or maybe the first time, and the Lord has brought you here uh, to this place to help redirect the course of your life, uh, to help you to make that choice, to choose that path. Let's pray and, and see. So as we enter into Esther chapter 4, um, here's where we're at with the story, just to give us an extremely brief catch-up. Uh, we know at this point, God's people have been in exile for over 100 years. It's been nearly uh, three generations, a long, long time. And because of that, the, the people, we know, they were in danger. Uh, the Israelites, the Jewish people, they were in danger of losing not just their culture, uh, but actually their faith. They had been in uh, Babylonia uh, and, and Persia for so long that you know, it was very difficult for them to, to keep their identity. Um, and then not only that, we, we see in chapter 3 that they're not only in danger of losing their culture, they're not only in danger of losing uh, their faith, but now they're in danger of losing their lives. 
You see, we know we're introduced to this, to this man named Haman. He was the prime minister of Persia. And we learn that he issues this executive order for the genocide of all Jews in the kingdom. Everyone must be killed, no exceptions. Every man, every woman, every child. And so, by the end of chapter 3, we're sort of left in this uh, very confusing, very chaotic, uh, dark, and, and gloomy situation. It's a depressing scene. And that's how we enter into chapter 4. So what we're going to do, um, as we've done the last three chapters, I'm going to walk us through this passage. I'll offer some, hopefully, helpful commentary along the way. And then I'll close our time with a couple points of application. Um, so, are you ready? Esther chapter 4. This is how it starts in verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, What's all that had been done? Haman's order for the annihilation of the Jews. Okay, that's what we're talking about. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate. For no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. So we see here, uh, Mordecai is in pain, deep pain. He's grieving. And in reading uh, the story, If you've been reading it, following along, it really makes a lot of sense, right? Uh, For one, he knows that this order, this edict that's been uh, put in place by Haman is in large part due to his conflict, his uh, interpersonal conflict with Haman. That in some ways, even though we know God is orchestrating everything, that in some ways this is actually his fault. Now, uh, maybe uh, Haman hated the Jews all along, right? And that he was just looking for a way uh, to annihilate them, to destroy them all. We're not sure. But what we do know is that when Mordecai refused to bow down to him, when he refused to, to honor Haman, Haman lost it, right? He lost it. Um, and he came up with this order, Every Jew must die, not just Mordecai, every single one of them. And so certainly, you know, put yourself in those shoes, put yourself in the shoes of Mordecai. Certainly he is feeling the weight of that in his decision. But more than that, Mordecai is grieving, again, simply because his people are now on the cusp of extinction. They're all going to die. The date is set. And no one could have predicted this. And so what does he do in response to those uh, all of this. Well, we see he, he tears his clothes and he puts on sackcloth and ashes, uh, both of which were common signs of mourning and grief um, in the Old Testament. Uh, we know that the tearing of clothes was meant to be an external expression of an inward broken heart. Okay? That sackcloth, it was this, um, you can probably even do a quick Google image of it, but it's this very heavy um, itchy, uncover, uh, very heavy, like uncomfortable garment 
that made you feel physically how you felt emotionally, right? So you feel bad emotionally, you put, you wear this, this garment that makes you feel bad, right? Um, and, and then they would also put on ashes. We see him do this, okay? Other Jews are doing this as well. They're putting on ashes. And um, now we're, we're, for those of you who are familiar, we're just getting into the Lent season. And so you'll see, you know, uh, especially in those traditions, they'll put a little ash on their, in the middle of their forehead, right? It's Ash Wednesday. Um, they would wear ashes, actually. Typically, they'd put them um, on their head, Okay, or, or all over their face. Um, sometimes they would put those ashes on their shoulders as a way to identify with the fragile nature of life, right? even death itself. It's this, um, it's this expression that life is sort of um, uh, is fleeting. It's, it's temporary. And so Mordecai was literally, you can imagine this, right? He's, he's got this sort of heavy, itchy garment on, he's covered in ashes, and he's walking around the city, and he's just weeping. He's crying. He's, he's broken. He is in deep, visible pain. And beyond that, again, we learn that throughout the entire empire, other Jews are doing the exact same thing, that there is fasting taking place. There's uh, mass weeping. There is lamenting. These people, the Jewish people, God's people, they are allowing themselves to feel the pain uh, of this decision. They're allowing themselves to hurt, to, to grieve, which, which, let me just say, is, is deeply biblical, but also profoundly healthy. Right, we'll come back to this later, but this is certainly a lost practice uh, within Christianity. Right? Most of us probably don't even know what lamenting is. Right? Um, but we'll move forward with the story and come back to that later. So verse 4, the story continues. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her what Mordecai was up to, the queen was deeply distressed. So she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for uh, Hathik, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. So we'll pause there for a minute. We, we see here that Esther, uh, she gets wind of, she learns that uh, Mordecai was grieving. He's in deep emotional sadness. And so uh, being his daughter, we know that it's his, his, her cousin, actually, but his adopted daughter, um, she tries to care for him, right? She extends out sort of an invitation to, to help him and to clothe him, and he refuses, right? No, I can't accept. And so what does she do? Well, we learn that she sends her servant to go figure out what's going on. And this actually tells us a, a really interesting detail that we can't let just pass us by. The detail is, is this, that apparently Esther hasn't heard about Haman's order. She has no idea what's going on. That she has become so isolated, actually, so detached from the culture, from society, from her family, from uh, her, her religious background, uh, she's just sort of assimilated right into the ways of the palace. She has no idea what's, what's going on. 
But we see that she doesn't remain in the dark for long, right? The servant goes out, finds Mordecai, and then Mordecai explains all of the happenings, sort of gives a synopsis of what took place, particularly, of course, that all of the Jewish people are going to die. And then look at verse 8. It says, Mordecai also gave him a copy, that's Hathak, gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for the destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king, listen, go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. That's the request. This is what Mordecai wants Esther to do. So, Hathak has the message, as the messenger, takes it, goes back, delivers the message to Esther, and then Esther responds. And so we sort of see this middleman, Hathak, is going back and forth, and we're getting this dialogue. Esther and Mordecai are not speaking directly at this point. Okay? It's in between, there's a middleman. So then she responds to Hathak to go tell, okay, I hear you, now go tell Mordecai this, starting in verse 10. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king for 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. So we see here uh, Esther's response to Mordecai's request in words. It's actually, uh, it's incredibly human, isn't it? Mordecai tells her, uh, go to the king. Right? I need you to go to the king. This is what would be best. And she basically responds to him by saying, look, but if you, if you, know, if I, you know if I do that, you know if I make that decision, like I'm going to die, right? That's basically what she's saying. That you don't just waltz in. You just don't walk into the king's presence. So like, is there a plan B? Like in your wisdom, right? is there another option here? Right? And there are actually a few complexities to this story that, that help us uncover um, how tense this situation really is. First, we learn that no one, no one can see the king unless they are called, right? Unless the golden scepter is put out and you are invited into his presence. Seeing him was very controlled. And of course, we know, right? This isn't too odd, right? We know that this is true of any head of state. Or any country, right? Like, you're not just going to walk to the Blue House here in Korea and be like, I really need to see President Moon, right? Like, who are you, right? Who am I, You're not going to do that to the President of the United States, any ruler, right? You don't waste a king or a leader's time. They don't have time for you, right? And so if you wanted to see the Persian king, if you wanted to see King Ahasuerus or King Xerxes, you waited for an invitation, And apparently in Persia, as crazy as it might seem, um, as crazy as it might sound, that even applied to his queen, to his wife, Esther. Could you, could you imagine, right? Like not even your own wife can enter into your presence and see you unless you invite her. It's pretty extreme. 
guys, don't try that, right? You're going to get hit with a scepter, right? You're going to, like, right. Then there's this other challenge here, though, that, that we learn here, that, that Esther hasn't been called or invited in to see him for 30 days. A month. It's been a month. And by her words, it doesn't seem here that she expected for that call to happen anytime soon. So this is not good. It is not in her favor that her own husband has chosen not to speak with her and not to be with her for a month, right? So this is making Mordecai's request to her all the more difficult. It wasn't the ideal time, in other words, to be looking for a favor. And then finally, let's remember that King Xerxes has a history of removing queens. He's done that before, right? We already saw that in chapter one, that even the slightest words, the slightest offense against him could get you removed, could get you banished from his presence, could get you killed. And so this is a, again, it's a very complex, complicated situation. Esther has no idea what will happen to her if she approaches the king, her husband. So there is great concern here. This is a a huge risk. But, but Mordecai is firm. He's firm. And so look at his response in verses 13 to 14. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. So they come and deliver that message. And he's like, well, here's some, here's a message back again, right? It's this back and forth. He says, do not think to yourself. And he's talking directly to Esther. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace, you will escape any more than all the other Jews. He's saying, don't count on the fact that just because you're comfortably isolated behind the palace walls, that you'll be safe. Now listen, your life, Esther, actually, your life is in danger either way. Either as a Jew or going uninvited to the king. Then he continues, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. So, so this is fascinating because it, it seems to be expressing Mordecai's confidence that God will deliver his people. But, but if we've read and gone through chapter 1, 2, and 3, you know, right, this wasn't always the case. This wasn't always present in Mordecai's character, right? But now we see some character development taking place. And it's true, notice, I think it's an important detail. He doesn't say God's name directly. I think that's a little odd. Like if there was ever a time to use the name Yahweh or Lord, this would be it. He doesn't for whatever reason. But at the same time, it's difficult to imagine that he has anyone else in mind. Who else could rescue his people, right? And so Mordecai is trusting the Lord here, trusting God here, perhaps at least recorded for the first time. And his point is, if Esther stays silent, if you choose not to do this, then God will see to it to help us all in another way. But then he adds these 
I don't want to call them odd necessarily, but they're, they're uneasy words. He, he adds this little phrase at the end. He says, but you, we'll all be rescued. God's people will be delivered, but you, Esther, and your father's house will perish. In other words, die, right? So what's that, right? Like, what's that about? Because it, it appears to be like a veiled warning, doesn't it? It almost seems like he's threatening her. Um, it seems like he's saying, you and your family will not get away with this, Esther, if you stay quiet. And by the way, he's part of her family, right? He raised her. He's saying that, you know, your identity right now, it might feel carefully tucked away and concealed, hidden, but if you stay quiet, it'll come out. Who you are will come out. But notice he doesn't say how. So, what is he really saying? Like, is he saying, if you don't tell, I'm going to tattletale on you? Like, is that what he's saying? Or is he just saying simply like, I don't know how, but I do know God will intervene here. Like, he's going to make it known. Right? We just don't know. And the text doesn't say. But that uncertainty there, that little phrase there, it only adds to the intensity of this scene. I'm sure she's even hearing this and questioning oh my goodness, like, what should I do? Like, if I don't do this, if I don't do this, then I'm going to die. And then if I do this, I'm going to die, right? It's this, it's very, very dramatic, right? Esther's life, she just has found out it's in jeopardy either way. And so Mordecai says, God will prevail here. But Esther, you must choose who you will trust, Ultimately, God's will will be done. But in the midst of that, you have to choose who you will trust. So again, this is a major crossroad for Esther. It's a fork in the road, a T, whatever you want to call it. It's a crossroad. She has a choice to make, perhaps the most significant choice of her life. And then Mordecai adds this. This is worth underlining, highlighting, circling, whatever you want to do. Mordecai says this, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this, for such a time as this. The entire sermon series could be called for such a time as this. We could take that banner instead of saying, seeing the unsaved God, we could say for such a time as this. It's a really significant phrase. Mordecai is saying, it might be, Esther, it just might be that God has raised you up, that he has put you in a position of honor and fame and glory, that he has lifted you high just for this moment, just for this time. It is actually, it's the strongest indication of Mordecai's belief in God's divine providence. He's saying, maybe God, actually, think about it. Maybe God is behind all of this. Maybe God has been behind all of this. Maybe this wasn't about me. Maybe this wasn't even about you, Esther, like you getting out of a difficult situation and being placed in a position of prominence, maybe all of this was about God delivering and rescuing his people, and we just didn't know it. We just didn't see it. 
And of course, for those of us who are familiar with this story, like we have to be careful because we read this and we think, well, this is obvious. Yeah, yeah, God is over everything. Right? But it wasn't obvious to them. Not in their situation. It wasn't obvious. And so we have to continually fight to insert ourselves into this story. We have to fight. Otherwise, we won't get the significance of it. The answer was not clear to them. They didn't know what would happen, especially considering Mordecai and Esther's past. I mean, let's, let's not forget. Let's remember how Esther got to be queen. How did that happen? Right? Well, it was through a morally questionable series of events, right? It was through compromise. She, she marries a, a pagan king. She continues. It's been five years. She has continually hid her faith, hid her identity. That's not ideal, by the way. Okay? And so this doesn't seem like the strongest candidate to rescue God's people from genocide. Okay? That's the point. But this is the current situation that we have. That's, this is the current situation that we find ourselves in. She's really the only hope as far as a human standpoint or human level is concerned. And once again, keep in mind what this entails, what this decision, what her unveiling her identity means. This means Esther telling her husband, her king, and the court that she is a Jew. She's going to be admitting she was hiding her identity all this time. And beyond the shame of that, this revelation of who she really is will certainly suddenly make her a target of Haman's edict to kill all the Jews as well. She's just throwing herself in the crossfires with this decision. She's turning herself in. That's what she's being asked to do. To put her own life at risk, probably she's going to die. And yet Mordecai says to her, in the midst of all that, knowing that she probably will die, he says, who knows? Maybe God will use our compromise, our decisions, the decisions that we made together. Maybe he'll use those decisions for good. Maybe he wants to use you, Esther, to save his people. And, and I hope you're, you're picking up on this as we go through this, because this should be, it is a huge encouragement to anyone who has ever asked, anyone who's ever considered or even thought about asking, could God use me? After all that I've done, who I am, could God ever use me? It's, it's a huge encouragement to anyone who feels that they are not worthy. Because looking at Esther's story in the rest of the Bible, we see the clear answer is yes. That, that God works and specializes, actually, in working through sinners. Right? God works and specializes in working through sinners. Right? After all, it's the only material he has to work with, right? That's all he's got. He only has sinners. So he's really good at using sinners. And yes, he does. So just because we have sinned, just because we have compromised our faith, just because we have failed now, today, yesterday, or in your past, does not mean that God is done with us. 
does not mean that God is finished with you. Right? That's the story that we see unfolding here in Esther's life, through Esther's life. And so we see that she has a, a life or death choice to make. But to her, it feels like a death or death choice, right? It's a tough choice. But either way, either way, it is now no longer possible for her to live in the shadows of compromise. It is no longer an option for her to have a privatized faith. She has two options, two, just two. She could deny her Jewish roots and become fully Persian. She could make that choice. She could save herself, like just banish Mordecai, have him put to death. She has the authority to do that, by the way. She just go on living her glamorous, like privileged life, like Kim Kardashian life, right? She go on doing that. Unlimited power, unlimited resources. Or she could identify herself as a Jew. She could be faithful to God. She could stand up for her people. She could go to the king. But in that decision, likely be killed. So this is her crossroads. Her major crossroads. Her two identities are colliding right here before us. Her life is crashing before her. And she has to choose. Again, will she remain compromised? Or will she leave that old life behind and will she go to God? And so as we read through this, we are meant to feel the weight of this. We are meant, the author wants you to understand how high the stakes are here. They actually can't be any higher. She is, Esther is pushed to the edge. She has to choose. And then she responds to that. Verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa. That's the capital city of Persia. And hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat, do not drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. So just as Mordecai um, has shown us in this chapter a a glimmer of faith, um, we see now... Esther shows a glimmer of faith. She says, let's do a fast to God. And she actually doesn't say God's name again. I guess she just takes after her dad. They just can't say God's name for whatever reason. I think that's part of the point of Esther, actually. But you fast to God in Jewish culture. It's only to him. And she says, we need to do a full fast, actually. No food. And notice, it's, a, it's a, an important detail, actually. No water. No food, no water. And that is extremely, extremely rare, even throughout the scriptures. Throughout the whole Bible, it is difficult to see a fast done where there is no intake of both food, but especially water. Only in the most extreme situations would you ever do that. Because we know, of course, right? You literally cannot live without food, but especially without water, right? And so there have been people even 
today. Like in our culture, they've fasted, attempted to fast 40 days. They've done that as Jesus did that, but they're drinking water throughout, right? Otherwise you would, you would die, right? Um, three days, no food, no water. So this is an extremely significant moment for Esther. And why? Well, let's understand this, right? She had a choice. She didn't have to fast. She didn't have to do that. She also didn't have to call other people to fast, right? She, she could have just said, hey, I'm going to fast for three days. Or again, kept that private. I'm going to go in to the king and oh, it's difficult for me. I need some strength. And so I'm going to fast. She not only calls herself to fast and the women around her, she calls Mordecai and all the Jews in the capital city to do the same, right? She could have just gone straight to strategy, She could have gone straight to seeking other wise counsel. And by the way, they have, her and Mordecai have done that before, right? There's going to be like, you know, the, the bachelor in Persia or whatever, you know, remember, you know, King Xerxes, he's looking for a next queen. And so they strategize together. Okay. What does this look like? How are you going to get in? What are you going to do? And, or how are you going to be well known? How are you going to stand out? Right. They've done that before, but she doesn't do that here. She first says, this is what we should do. First, let's go to God. Let's go to God. And so this appears to be something of a, of a spiritual breakthrough for Esther. She's chosen her direction now. She's chosen her path. And then verse 16 says this. She says, then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. I like that she reminds Mordecai of what she's doing. She's already said that it's against the law and I'm probably going to die. But she says again, just in case you forgot what I'm, you've asked me to do and what I'm doing, right? Then I will go to the king, though it's against the law. And then she says this, if I perish, I perish. If I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. In other words, he calls all the Jews together and they do a citywide fast, three days, three nights, no food, no water. That's what happens. So Esther now lets us know, along with Mordecai, that she will go to the king, not as Esther. That's her Persian name. She will go to her king, to her husband now as Hadassah, the Jew. And this will be the great turning point of her life. She has decided to put her life at risk, to lay down her life for the good of God's people. And the chapter ends with what has become uh, or come to be known as her most famous words. She says, if I perish, I perish. Now, um, the, the Hebrew construction here behind those words if I perish, I perish. Um, it's actually, I wouldn't get too deeply into this, but I think it's important because this is such a famous verse. Um, the Hebrew construction here of that phrase is actually passive. Um, and so what that means is it's, bottom line, it's something that you can't see in English. You can't. Um, but it tells us, what it reveals to us is that she didn't see death as one option. So this is not like her saying, um, if I perish, I perish. Or like, if I live, Mordecai, I live. If I live, I live. Actually, the wording here is more like, 
death isn't just one possible outcome, but it is the only outcome. It's the only outcome. So I wrestled with this a lot because as much as this would make a great sermon point, right? I want to use it so bad, right? It sounds so epic, right? If I perish, I perish. Like we could write it on t-shirts, right? It'd be awesome. But that would be being dishonest to the text. That these are actually not heroically faithful words from Esther. So I'm sorry to burst your bubble. She's actually showing some, uh, some timidity here. This is her being afraid. She's basically saying this, whatever happens, happens. I'm probably going to die. That's actually what it is. I love it. Thank you. Someone. It's good. It's good. All right. It's good. Someone laughed if you're here in the camera. Okay. So again, right, you've probably heard that preached or taught before, right? It's like, the, it's like the central verse in Esther. We use it in Bible studies. Like, so what would that look like to have a faith that like, if I die or die? And by the way, that's in the scriptures, right? Other places that we could sacrifice, lose our life for the kingdom, right? Go to Jesus, go to the apostles. That's not Esther. She's actually just saying, again, whatever happens, happens, probably going to die. Okay. And then that's where chapter four ends. It finishes right there. And so now what I want to do for us, we'll move away from the commentary. We'll move away from the exegesis of this text and we'll enter into some brief application. I think it's, there's a lot we can take about or take from this, um, but I'm only going to, I probably shouldn't even squeeze three because of the time restraint. I'm going to try, okay, to fly through this. There's so much here because what we see here. Uh, there's so much that directly applies to our lives. This story gives us some clear encouragement in terms of how to handle the crossroads of life, both big and small, which, by the way, we face every single day, both big or small, decisions every single day. And so number one, one of the things that this chapter encourages us to do is that when the crossroads come, choose God. When the crossroads come, Choose God. This may seem obvious. Um, it is obvious. Okay? But we all know in our heart of hearts that this needs to be said, and we always need these types of reminders. Because oftentimes, when we're facing a crossroads situation in life, when we are left with a difficult choice, despite all of our good intentions, um, all of our good theology, our past faith decisions, how often is our first response doubt and human strategy? How often is our response at these types of crossroads not trust in God, first and foremost? Like, we believe in God, many of us. I'm, in, I'm here with you, by the way. But we believe in God, we profess faith in God, but so often in our practice, at the crossroads of life, we appear to be atheists. And so when you're faced with a disease, when you are hit with an unexpected loss, when you lose your job, when you feel abandoned by a family member or a friend, Maybe you feel uh, led by the Lord to do something very specific, but you don't want to do it. 
Or maybe it's as simple as this. It's a choice between prioritizing Jesus and Jesus's people, like a local church, over your own time and your own schedule and your own wants and needs. Simple. Do we live out the theology that we proclaim when we're at the crossroads of life? Listen, in in these moments, big and small, we must choose who and what is our God. And, And by the way, this is one of the reasons actually that crossroads are a gift, right? They are hard, they are difficult, They are uncomfortable, but they are a gift because they reveal most deeply what we believe about God and what we believe about ourselves. Right? The crossroads of life, they actually wake us up and they invite us to depend on God through anything that comes our way. Anything that comes into our life, no matter how difficult, no matter how painful it is. Right, this crossroads for Esther, right? We have to understand, it, it revealed, it uncovered her faith. And that's what it took. The same is true of us. And, and let me say this as well. What this means is that every single crossroad that you and I face is crucial. Every single one. Every single one. Because they are each an opportunity to turn to God or to turn from God. Each one is a test of our faith. It's a test of what we say we believe. Each crossroad unveils our hearts and reveals, do we believe, do we actually believe that choosing him in everything, every single time, will always lead us where we want to go, even when we don't see it? Well, God, this is where I want to go. I've done all the research. I've looked into all the choices. This is clearly the best option. He says, no, no, but go that way. Where do you do? Like, do we believe? Do we believe? Are we convinced that at these big and small crossroad moments in life, that faithfulness, our faithfulness, will always lead to fruitfulness? Every time. Even if every single person in your life is saying, do the other thing, and every single person in your life is going the other direction, will you be faithful? So listen, you might, you might, let's get serious. You might choose God in a moment, but you might lose your boyfriend. You might choose God in the moment, but you might lose your job. Is it worth it? You might choose God in the moment, but your health might be sacrificed. What do you mean? My health? What do you, you're saying like, you know, sometimes like I, I'm going to get sick if I'm a Christian. Sometimes, have we not just read Esther? <laughs> Esther's choice for God is putting her in the crosshairs of death. Sometimes it happens. But in that choice, even though, yeah, we choose God and lose other things, understand, in that choice, what do we get? I already said it. You get God. God, you get peace. You get joy that no one can rob you of. And so let me ask you today, how will you respond at the crossroads of life? They're coming Maybe this afternoon, maybe this evening, 
maybe this week. They're coming. How will you respond? And even now, how are you responding to the crossroads that are in place in front of you right now, have been placed in front of you right now? Right? Life, we know this. Life is full. It is filled with so many decisions. So many choices, isn't it? Right? Crossroads to choose God in very big and sometimes just very small ways. Like a simple crossroad is this. You woke up this morning. You'll wake up, Lord willing. He gives you another day. You wake up tomorrow morning. Will you choose to get in the word? It's a crossroad. Will you choose to pray? It's a crossroads every single day. That's a crossroads decision. Every single day, what will you choose? No, God, I'm not going to do it today. I'm going to rely on myself. I can make it through. These last two years, uh, they've been pretty easy, right? Who agrees? (laughs) I'm fine. I can make it all by myself. Or will you choose him? Trusting that continual faithfulness in the word, in prayer, in community, in fellowship, will lead you to a joyful, blessed, fruitful life. What will you choose? So, as simple as it seems, it has to be our first point. When the crossroads come, choose God. And by the way, let me say this as well. Do that now. Like right here. Do that now. In other words, choose him in advance. Do that now so that you'll be prepared. Regardless of the pressure. Right? Regardless of the trial. Regardless of the decision that needs to be made. Choose him now. All right, this is the beauty, actually, of the story of Daniel. This is off the text, but it's worth being said. You know, Daniel, he's young. He's a teenager, right? He is also put in exile. His family is exiled as well. Looks like he's alone. Okay, we have that appearance. Um, the Babylonian Empire exiled uh, uh, the Jerusalem uh, this Jerusalem city and amongst and the elite boys there, okay, brought, brought them into the palace. And so Nebuchadnezzar puts Daniel and his friends and other elite Jewish boys in his court to try to raise them up to be leaders, right? And, and food comes out. And they have been like walking miles and miles and miles, probably starving, hungry, and now before them is, is put in front of them the best food you've ever seen in your life. And he has a choice to make. Do I eat it or not? But I'm hungry, right? I'm hungry. God will understand, right? Just one time, just one meal, one like chicken wing, right? Just one. But no, what does he say? He says, it says that Daniel resolved. You can look at this, Daniel 1. Daniel resolved not to eat the king's choice food. You know what that means? It means he did not make a decision in that moment. The food wasn't before him, like the pies and the chicken wings, and he's like, should I do this? No, because then he'd fail. The point is, he is walking in exile, He was captured, and he had already made a decision. I know, I know they're going to ask me to compromise. I know it's coming. They're going to ask me to bow down, to worship another god, to eat food paid to idols. And when that time comes, I will stand firm. So now when the time comes, he does stand firm. We have to do the same. Resolve in your heart to choose God. So that no matter what 
crossroads comes, you will stand firm. That's number one. Number two, when the crossroads come, these are suggestions for you. There's two of them. First, consider fasting. Okay, consider fasting. We know that the Bible does not mandate okay, that we fast on certain days or in certain ways. But the assumption throughout the scriptures is that we will fast. In the same way that it's expected that you pray, uh, gather together with the church, uh, read the scriptures, be in community and fellowship, be devoted to fellowship, breaking of bread and prayers, right? In the same way, the Bible expects that we fast. And the Bible expresses a lot of different reasons for fasting, whether it's expressing love for God or seeking his guidance in a decision like we see in Esther or expressing grief or repentance or just as a way to rededicate yourself to the Lord. Right? And one of the things that fasting does, okay, it's one of the many things, but it's, it's big, this is big, that it reveals actually how fragile we are and how much we need God. Right? It reveals how much we tend to turn to the things of this world to find our sense of comfort and strength and security and joy rather than to find those things in God. And so when the crossroads of life come, consider fasting. In fact, uh, I believe that you should practice it regularly. Regularly. Make this a habit of your life. Go without food for a specific moment of time. Maybe it's one meal a week. Maybe it's one day per month. You can do it alone. You can do it with a friend. And you should do it always with a very specific spiritual purpose. Not because you think you need to lose a kilogram. Okay? A spiritual purpose. Otherwise, it's called a diet. And like Esther, like Esther, again, we don't do this. We don't do this to twist God's arm. I'm going to keep fasting. I'm not going to drink water until you do what I say. That's not this. Right? No, we fast to know God more. We fast to love him more. We we fast to cultivate a a deeper contentment and trust in him. We fast to to show a a greater dependence and a need for him. I heard one pastor say it this way. Fasting allows our physical hunger to increase our spiritual hunger. I really like that. Fasting allows our physical hunger to increase our spiritual hunger. And that's what we need. That's exactly what we need when we are faced with a crossroad. We need to be trusting in the Lord, looking to him, focusing on him, so that again, we ultimately will choose him and choose his way. And so consider fasting. Consider fasting. And then lastly, when the crossroads of life come our way, consider lament. Consider lament. In this chapter, uh, we saw that Mordecai and the Jews uh, lament over Haman's call for genocide. That's their response, right? And I'm sure, uh, I'm sure that the majority of us won't face that severe of a situation in our lives. I pray that that doesn't happen. Um, But this is still a great example to us of how we can rightly and biblically handle our pain, handle our confusion, 
and deal with the disappointments that we face in life. Right? I mentioned this before very briefly, but unfortunately, as followers of Jesus, many of us have absolutely no framework for lamenting. No, no framework for it. Which means that we actually don't know how then to handle our pain and our sorrow. Because the biblical response to pain and sorrow is lament. And so in that, what happens is, because we don't know what is lamenting or how to lament, what happens is our flesh comes in and our human response to these challenges and trials of life are often what what is unveiled or uncovered is unhealthy emotions like bitterness, resentment, jealousy, anger, a lack of faith. Right? But lament is one of the primary ways, the opposite, it's one of the primary ways that God has given us to rightly handle our pain. And so you can think of lament, simple definition, lament is this, it is God-centered mourning. That's all it is. God-centered mourning. And, and what does that actually look like? Okay, well, I could, actually, I could go into an entire sermon on this, um, even two, actually in a couple weeks, um, Pastor Levi is going to be taking us through a psalm of, of lament. Um, so I'm sure more details will come there. Um, but to try to make it really simple, at least for now, like what does this look like in practice? Um, it's praying. Okay? Lamenting is praying. It's praying. And, and as you're praying, you're actually you're crying out to God about the pain that you face. It's being very real and honest with God. It's like, even when you feel that hope is not a possibility, when hope is distant from you, you reach out to the author of hope. That's lament. And then in that conversation with God, again, you get really real. You get really honest. You verbalize the tension that you face. It's actually called biblical complaining. Okay? So I know Paul says, do everything without complaining, but there is biblical complaining. How long, O Lord? Right? You see this even with, with Jesus in Mark 9. Right? The, um, the disciples, there's a, a, a boy who cannot be, sorry, who isn't healed. Right? They are trying to get healing, and he comes down off the Mount of Transfiguration, and then they tell him, hey, we can't like, get the demon out of this kid. And what is Jesus' response? How long, oh Lord, must I be with this generation? How long, right? He's complaining. Um, He knows God's ultimate plan, but he's complaining to the Lord. And it's the same way. God, how long COVID is going to go, right? How long? How long am I going to have to wear a mask everywhere I go, right? How long, right? It's complaining to the Lord. And then in that, you're asking the Lord for relief. You're asking him for his divine help. And in all of this, though, here's the difference. You do this with a deep-seated trust and actual hope. That's the key to lamenting. That's the difference. You cry to the Lord. Right? It is healthy, actually. You bring your tears to the Lord. Weep before him. Right? Bring your fears and failures to God, but do it with faith. So lament is the language of people. It's the language of people who believe that God is good and sovereign, 
but who live in a world that is filled with tragedy, trial, and brokenness. Okay? Lament is the language of people who believe that God is good and sovereign, but who live in a world, who know that they live in a world that is filled with tragedy, with trial, and brokenness. And lament is the prayer that fills the gap between those two realities. See that? So this is how Christians, followers of Jesus, grieve in a healthy way. It's, a, it's, it's prayer in pain that leads to greater trust. And of course, I've already mentioned Jesus himself did that. Uh, but the greatest example of this, of course, um, is on the cross. Even though Jesus, he knew full well, he knew God's overall plan of redemptive history. He knew the end. He knew how, how the story came to a close. He knew exactly what would happen to him. Yet, in the pain of the moment, on the cross, he is in total control, but he is strategically moved to quote Psalm 22, which is, by the way, it's a psalm of lament. He does this on purpose. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's lamenting. And in doing that, it shows us that even though we trust God, even though we believe in him, that there are times when we don't understand him and we have no idea exactly what he is doing. That there are times in my walk with the Lord that I do not feel loved by God. And that's okay. There are times in my walk with Christ that I don't feel his presence. That I don't get his goodness towards me because it seems like a mess. Everything seems bad. And I, I, can, I can feel that while at the same time, again, deep down, knowing, knowing the truth that he loves me, that he is with me, that he only has good in store for me. And so in those moments, in that gap, again, I call out, I cry out to the Lord. And so when the crossroad comes, and it will, when it comes and when it brings pain with it, lament. Pray through the Psalms of lament. Like personalize them even. Like be honest with the Lord. Be vulnerable in front of the Lord. Cry out to him. Don't internalize your, your, your feelings and your, and your faith or even your doubt. Or he knows anyway. So, so cry out to him. We have biblical precedence for this. And then I'll wrap things up with this. Um, I've already said there's going to be a lot of crossroads that you and I face in our, in our life, um, both big and small. That is true. Um, for the rest of your life, you will be facing crossroads. But the greatest crossroad uh, that you and I will ever face, face in our life is how we respond to Jesus. Uh, what do we do with Jesus? You see, uh, like the Jewish people in the story of Esther, we too uh, need a mediator. We need someone to represent us. In our helplessness, hopelessness, we need someone 
to go on our behalf. Because listen, fallen, sinful people like us can't just enter into the presence of God unannounced and uninvited. In fact, like the Jewish people in Esther, a a, a declaration actually has gone out to the world that human humanity, because of that fallenness, because of that brokenness, because of our sin, humanity is worthy of death and separation from God. We have an end date. Which means, again, that we need someone to step up for us. Someone who's willing to go to God on our behalf. Someone who would be willing to put their life on the line to save us. And praise God, we know today uh, that Jesus has done just that. He is our mediator. Jesus came to this earth knowing that he would lose his life for our sake. But yet he still made that choice at his crossroads. And he did so gladly for God's glory, for our forgiveness, and for our everlasting joy. And so to put it really simply today, Jesus creates a crossroad for you and I. And there are only two paths. There is the path of surrendering to him as Lord and Savior. And then there's another path, which is the refusal to bow to him and insisting on going our own way. And so what will you choose today? What will be your choice? And even after you have given your life to Jesus, you've already made that initial choice, let me encourage you to keep choosing him as you come up against the various crossroads of this life. Choose him, not the world. And perhaps today, perhaps today, the circumstances of life, uh, all of its happenings, has brought you to a very specific choice that you must make. Listen, it's not a coincidence. It's not an accident that you're here, that you're listening to these words today. God has brought you here to remind you to turn to him again. Choose him. So church family, let's together, let's continually choose Jesus. Uh, We may not know uh, what he is doing. Uh, We often don't actually. But we do know that we can trust him and that he is good. Which means that in the end, there's only ever one choice to make, right? And by God's grace, every single one of us will make that choice. Amen? Let's pray together.